0: You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg and thank you for joining me today. A couple of days ago, one of the heads of the Mossad, his name is Yossi Cohen, he's a smart guy, he'll probably be prime minister one day. And he said something very important about this war with the Hamas. He said, and I quote him almost, We can wipe out the infrastructure of the Hamas, but you can't wipe out their ideology. The Hamas is an idea, and you can't destroy that. And of course, he's right, because the Hamas is an idea. It's the idea of Islam. And that's why this war, it's not about countries anymore. No Arab leaders of any country can decide today, should I get involved? Should I not get involved? It's not about them anymore. This struggle has taken over the streets. It's an idea. And Islam has taken over the Arab street. So yeah, you could destroy the Hamas in Gaza, but you have Hamas in Janine, and in Shechem, and in Umm al and in Jaffa, and in Lod. So how are you going to battle that? Only people like us who understand the power of the idea, of the Jewish idea, we know how to destroy the idea of the Hamas. Their idea is Allahu Akbar, and our idea is Hashem is the true God. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Achad. How do you begin to destroy the idea of Islam? Well, for starters, how about removing the mask off the Temple Mount? That's their pride and joy. That pimple that sits on the Temple Mount where the Temple is supposed to be. That's the biggest victory for them of all. If you approach this war as a Mechamed Dat, if we approach it that way, as a religious war, as a struggle of Judaism versus Islam, Then you destroy the idea of the Hamas. But the point is that Yossi Kohn of the Mossad, who said that you can't destroy the Hamas because it's an idea, he doesn't understand what I just said because he lacks Jewish identity. Like the rest of the military leaders, they're void of any Jewish identity. From their point of view, why do you have an IDF? It's to make sure that there's peace and order, kind of like a UN force to manage the enemy and survive somehow. And so you see, if you don't have an idea, if you don't know why we're here as Jews, if you don't know what God wants from us, you can't have any answers. And all the missiles and all the tanks aren't going to help. And just to show how removed our leaders are from the Jewish idea and how clueless they are, when the soldiers wrote graffiti on the walls in Gaza, they wrote Shema Yisrael, And other verses, the army rabbis said that the soldiers have to clean it off. You know why? Because you're not allowed to insult all the religions. That's how far they're removed from what this struggle is all about. If they understood that we're in a war between Judaism and Islam, they wouldn't utter such gibberish. So the idea, that's the real power. That's the real weapon. And that's why both Binyamin Kahana and Rabbi Meir Kahana Always spoke about the idea. You know, most of us are superficially attracted to the material things. You know, the things you can touch—the tanks, the buildings—but benjamin kind of especially focused on the ideas. And the Shin Bet knew that, and they were afraid of it. That's why they closed him down all the time. They raided his office, his home. They confiscated his computer several times. They didn't want him spreading the Jewish idea. They harassed him constantly. He was my neighbor in Tepoach, lived on the block from me. And every time I would peek out of my house, it was uncanny. I always saw a police van outside his house. What was he doing that had the shin Bet so worried? He wasn't throwing bombs at anybody. He wasn't even allowed a weapon, a handgun. And he wasn't giving rallies anymore either. But he was writing and disseminating the authentic Jewish idea to the Jewish people. He was reaching the masses with his ideas. That's why they were arresting him. That's what they were searching for in his house. They weren't looking for amlach, ammunition. They're looking for something much more nuclear, like his writings, his computer, the tools he needs to spread the truth to Israel. One time he wrote during his harassments, and he sat in jail many, many times, he once wrote that they can take my computer, they can take my lists, of activists and my people, but they can't take or they can't jail what I have in my head. What I have in my head, they can't take that away. And he said that basically, that's all I have. The ideas in my head. But we see that that is dangerous. It's dangerous to the Israeli authorities to spread the Jewish idea. But the thing is, that's the only way to win this struggle and defeat our enemy. We defeat Islam by crushing it coming in the name of Hashem Tzfakot Israel, You Arabs are coming in the name of Allah. And we're coming at you in the name of the God of Israel that you have defiled. That's how you beat them. And that's why after the Six Day War in 1967, you didn't hear any shouts of Al-Akbar. What happened? There were no shouts of that. No Arab was yelling that anymore. They were cowering in their houses. They were petrified that the Jews would either expel them or kill them. Many of them fled even. Unfortunately, Moshe Dayan brought a lot back, but that's another story. But the point is that the Israeli authorities, they feared Kahana, they feared the ideas that Kahana was spreading. That's what they are worried about. It would upset their hegemony of Western ideals that they have here, and that's what's most important to them. They didn't want the Kahana solution because it was a Jewish revolution. Hey, that rhymes. Their greatest fear is that his ideas would spread amongst the masses. And Rabbi Meir Kahana knew how important it was to get the idea out. He wrote a book called The Jewish Idea, or Rayon. And this is a, not a book, but it's a safer. It's a Torah book. And the rabbi worked on it intensely and he frantically tried to finish it as if he knew the end was coming. And in it is the entire, what you can call, Kahana ideology, all with clear sources from the Torah. The rabbi covered all the topics not just the personal subjects like humility and Yerat Shemayim and being in Simcha, but he wrote about the concepts, the ideas of vengeance, of Kiddush Hashem, Eretz Israel, wars, the status of a non-Jew in the land of Israel, settling the land. All those are halachic issues the rabbi addresses in this book. And because it wasn't superficial and because it was the true and authentic Jewish idea, the Israeli authorities were actually afraid of this book. I'll tell you a true story a good friend of mine and one of the right-hand men of both Rabbi Meir and Binyamin Zefkahana. his name is Mike Gazofsky, alias Yakutiel Ben Yaakov. And he told me that one of the times he was interrogated by the Shin Bet and he wasn't doing anything illegal and they knew it, but they warned him of one thing. What do they warn him about? Don't teach from the book Or I Own. Don't teach that book to people. That's what we forbid because they too know the power of the idea if a Jew arises and commits violence against Arabs here and there, that's not really gonna bother their whole setup here. But if you can instill an idea amongst the masses to make a switch from the Western Hellenist society that's being run here, that's what scares them. The idea, it's something spiritual. It's something transcendental. It's something that could sweep through the masses. And so it's more potent than any other physical weapon. Moving on to something else also very connected to the war we're fighting today. I wanna to talk about a Jewish hero who fell in Gaza and the sure are a lot of them. But one of them I wanted to talk about because I know him a little bit and my kids knew him. His name was Harel Sharvit from the settlement of Kolchav Yaakov. And he fell in Gaza this past Thursday and was buried in Herzl on Friday. He was an extraordinary young man. All my kids knew him. You know, this is a small country. Everybody knows everybody, especially amongst the settlers. He was put to rest just a few hours before Shabbat, Pashad Vayichi. Thousands escorted him to his final resting place in Har Herzl. And I want to talk about this Jewish hero, Haril Shavit. He was very outspoken. He was a real activist, very sensitive. And he was one of those people who couldn't stand quietly by. And because he could not just stand idly by, as he saw the Khilul Hashem in front of him, the desecration of God's name, the IDF reprimanded him and they even threw him out of the army temporarily because he wasn't afraid to voice his opposition to IDF policy in Gaza. And he posted his opinions on Facebook, how the army was not allowing the soldiers enough freedom of action. And as a soldier, he turned the world upside down just so that he can serve in the most dangerous parts of Gaza. That's what he wanted. And listen to how holy he was he would immerse in a mikvah, a ritual bath, before going out to battle because he considered it such a great mitzvah to fight the enemies of Israel. Now, what got him in trouble with the IDF was a video that he made while he was in Gaza. Not long ago, he was planting a tree in northern Gaza where some of the Jewish settlements used to be. And he says in this video that I'm planting a tree. This tree that I'm planting here, it is a call for us to return to Gush Katif. And then he mentions two Jewish prisoners who are sitting in prison today. Hilltop youth, one is Ariel Danino. The other is the Jewish man who was tortured into confession for what happened in the Arab village of Duma. His name is Amiran Ben Uliel, And Har El-Sharvit, who was heading a group for the release of Amiran Ben Uliel. Like I said, he was a huge activist when he wasn't in uniform. He says in this video that he posted, he says, don't worry, prisoners of Zion. We have not forgotten you here in Gaza. This tree is for you too. And so, like I said, because of that video, some high-ranking officers tried to throw him out of the army on that. They said he was shaming the IDF and contaminating the IDF uniform with his messaging. And by the way, if you want to see some of the stuff he posted, you can get in touch with me at goldberg 40 at gmail.com, Lenny Goldberg. 40, the number 40, at gmail.com. And I'll try to send you some of these WhatsApps and posts so you can hear it for yourself. Anyway, when the IDF reprimanded him for making that video, he responded to the accusations against him. This is what he wrote. He says, I'm contaminating the IDF uniform for what I did. Hey, look at all the comments on my post. Everyone's on my side. And like I said, the heads of the IDF condemned the video, decided to reprimand Harrell, but not to throw him out of the army. They let him stay. Of course, in retrospect, maybe it was better that they didn't let him stay. He would have been alive today. Now, when the IDF decided not to throw him out, this is what he wrote to his friends in yeshiva. Sarcastically, he said like this, the IDF has decided in my favor not to throw me out and they will allow me now to risk my life for Am Yisrael. Todaraba, thank you very much. And at the funeral, again, this past Friday, Harel Sharavit's father spoke of how his son was rejected from taking a course ktsinim, which is the officer's course, you know, to move up in rank. And his father said that's because that he was a man of truth and his truth wasn't aligned with their truth. In the end, though, because of his huge motivation, he never gave up, he took the course and he finished it. And in another story about Harel Sharvit, there was a pizza parlor in the Arab village of Silwan. They hung up a picture of one of the hostages, you know, Tamakas. And when Harel saw that his blood just boiled and this same thing had happened in Khawara at the very beginning of the war, a pizza parlor in Khawara also hung a picture of one of the hostages and the IDF destroyed it. And so Harel wanted the same thing to happen to this one. But the commander of that area, his name is Fuchs, he decided not to bulldoze this place, just to shut up the entrance you know, to block off the entrance. And Harrell wasn't accepting that. He was told that part of the reason they didn't destroy the building this time was because there weren't any IDF bulldozers available. So what did Harel do? He began checking out other options of hiring a private bulldozer, just a regular Israeli citizen, and pay him to do it. So he was constantly concerned with the honor of the Jewish people. Anyway, when the time came for the IDF to block up the entrance to this Arab pizza place, Harrell went there with his soldiers. And when the Arabs started shooting off fireworks at them, Harrell had his soldiers cock their weapons, ready to shoot them. And one of the higher ranking officers started yelling at him. But Harrell didn't back down. Didn't matter that this guy was a higher rank. Because he saw the injustice of it and he just couldn't let it go. And he continued supporting his soldiers who cocked their guns in that situation. And that was another incident that got him demoted. And when Harel's father told the story at the funeral, he said, when that happened, I said, what the heck, it's for the best. They don't want you, good for them. But Harel Sharvit once again insisted on returning and fighting in the most dangerous places in Gaza. Also at the funeral was Azar, who was a close friend of Harel. And he said that Harel requested that he fight in his unit. And I warned him that I've already been injured and a lot of guys in my unit have been killed. So Harrell said, what, it's really dangerous? I said, yeah. So Harrell said, Yofi, then I want to fight at your side. And Elazar said that before going into battle, Harrell would recite what it says in Psalms 18, I will pursue my enemies and I won't return until I wipe them all out. And that's how he acted in the battlefield. He wasn't afraid of the higher ranking officers with the with the high ranks and a lot of falafels on their shoulders and and their leftist stance, he wasn't impressed by them because he so much believed in Am Yisrael, in the people of Israel, in their healthy nation with normal instincts. And he was hoping that they would shake off the drek, the klipot of the Israeli media and the military leaders. And he would often say, we have to win this. And he was always trying to convince people to return to Gush Katif. He would say, if the change doesn't come from the bottom up, from the simple folk in Am Yisrael, then it's not going to happen. It's got to come from the bottom up. And when his good friend Yadide Eliyahu fell in battle a month ago when I spoke about Yadida Eliyahu in another podcast, and this is what he wrote in a Facebook post after the fall of his good friend Yadidah Eliyahu. This is insanity. So many settlers are the ones who are falling in battle. Have you noticed that? but there's no time to cry about it. There's no time to even think about it. We just have to win. And just one more thing his father said at the Lavaya. he said that on the day that Harel returned to Gaza, he phoned his father and he said, Abba, we're going to Gaza. This is the final battle. And the last thing he said was, Abba, lehitrot, Nikamabekarov, kavod Yisrael. Abba, lehitrot, I'll see you later. Vengeance is coming soon for the honor of Israel. Those were the last words he spoke to his father on the day he was killed. He went to Gaza on that Thursday morning. So I've spoken a lot about Harel Sharvit and now I want you to hear him speak. And this is a WhatsApp message, just an off the cuff message, informal, not a speech. And just to tell you what the context is here, his friend had just ascended the Temple Mount and Harel Sharvit was encouraging him how important it is to ascend the Temple Mount. How important it is that Jews care about Harabayit. And while he's saying this, he's in Gaza, and Harel here wants to encourage him and show him how important it is, the Temple Mount and Harabayit. And he draws from his experience in Gaza to explain it. And you'll hear this right now. Okay, so it's in Hebrew. So I'm going to translate the essence of what he's saying afterwards. But I think it's worth just hearing the voice of this holy Jew, even though many might not understand it. And I'll translate afterwards. He's telling his friend here and he keeps calling him my brother as Israelis often do he says I want to tell you something you go up to the temple mount When you go up to the Temple Mount, that is the focus of the war. That is where we're gonna win. You're a warrior for the Temple Mount. You're a warrior for the Temple Mount, because I want to tell you, And I want you to spread this recording to everybody. Every house, and I mean every single house we enter in Gaza, there's only one picture you see on the wall. It's a picture of Al-Aqsa, that abomination, that abomination. That's all you see in every house. Because that's what they're interested in, and they won't rest until they have the Temple Mount. And every house I enter in Gaza reminds me why we are fighting here. We're doing holy, holy work. Nothing comes second to what we're doing. Every time you go up the Temple Mount, you're fighting a war with your legs, with your hands, and with your eyes. eyes. Thank you so much. And so we're on the same mission. Maybe geographically we're not that close to each other. But we have the same mission. And we have one goal, and that's to win. Hashem is so great, my brother. I appreciate you. We'll meet, we'll laugh, and God willing, by the end of the year, we'll be standing under the four poles of the chuppah. That was Harel Sharvit, who was buried this past Friday in a conversation to a friend of his. So unfortunately, Harel Sharvit, never got to that chuppah. At his funeral, it was mentioned how much he wanted to get married. And in the end, he married Eretz Israel. Hashem yukom damo, may God avenge his blood. But notice what Harael said about the importance of the Temple Mount. And so this brings us back to what I talked about earlier, about what the focus of the struggle is. Judaism versus Islam. Is it going to be the mosque up there on the Temple Mount? Or is it going to be the Holy Temple? That's what it's all about. And may God avenge the death of our holy brother, Harel Sharvit. Now, one would like to think that everything possible is being done so our soldiers won't fall, so that there'll be the least amount of casualties. You'd like to think so. But you know it's not true because, for instance, what is it with this humanitarian aid that's being sent to Gaza? The government of Israel actually brags about it on their website. They say like this on their website. This is what's written on their website that since October 21st, 2023, the IDF has facilitated the entry of humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip through the RAFA crossing. This aid is designated for the civilian population in the Gaza Strip. And now here are the numbers. 76,550 tons of humanitarian aid have been transferred to Gaza, including 40,700 tons of food, 13,300 tons of water, 7,600 tons of medical supplies, 8,300 tons of shelter supplies, 6,600 tons of mixed supplies. That's 4,300 plus trucks carrying humanitarian aid that have gone to Gaza and countless more continue to go in every single day. That's what the government of Israel brags about on their website as they aid and abet our enemy. You know, sometimes it's good to know some history, to get a historical perspective on all this. The American Civil War, that was one brutal war. It was the North versus the South. The South wanted to break away from the Union. They wanted to continue with slavery. They wanted a two-state solution. And Abraham Lincoln didn't want a two-state solution. He wanted to keep the Union together. But as the war went on, it was so brutal. It was so horrendous that a lot of Americans were saying, you know what? Let's just accept the two-state solution because this thing isn't ending anytime soon. The civilian casualties, the destruction of the cities in the South, states like Georgia were burned to the ground. In the Civil War, there were 700,000 casualties and we're talking about a population at that time of only 24 million. That's how bad it was. But Abraham Lincoln insisted on continuing the fight. Again, he wanted to keep the union together and he wanted to end slavery. Anyway, In 1864, the war was about four years old and things were looking bad. It looked like Lincoln was going to lose the next elections. The casualties were so bad and everyone was just saying, when will this war end? There were battlefields that everywhere you stepped, you were stepping on either a dead person or a dead horse. Okay, so what changed the tide? Well, Ulysses Grant, who was leading the Union armies, he knew he had to do something. He had to do something drastic because This thing was carrying on too long. So what did he do to win the war? You think he called for a ceasefire maybe? No. Maybe we'll give the Confederacy a little humanitarian aid and fuel. Nope. That's not what he did. Because he knew that will just elongate the war. And remember, these are fellow Americans. They're not Gazans who cheer and vote for the Hamas. These were fellow Americans. But it didn't matter. Grant knew this thing had to end. And you can't end it by giving humanitarian aid and water to the enemy, not to the soldiers and not to the citizens. Because again, he knew this war was going to go on and on and on. So he decided to do whatever it takes to end it. So what did he do? Well, in short, he sent his men to go to Georgia and they cut Georgia off from the rest of the Confederacy because Georgia was providing food and supplies to the Southern Army. So he cut off the metropolitan areas They took all the food and all the cattle out of Georgia. And then for good measure, they burned Atlanta down to the ground. Atlanta was just rubble, the way as is supposed to be today. And this was the key to victory of the Union in the Civil War by cutting off their supplies. He blacked out Georgia because they were giving supplies to the Southern Army. That's how you win. So by us constantly providing aid and supplies to the enemy, we keep this thing going and more soldiers fall every day. We drag this thing out because we don't have a Lincoln and we don't have a Grant and we certainly don't have a David HaMelech. Before signing off, I sometimes like to end with an Aliyah pitch. We want all the Jews to come to Eretz Israel ASAP. Time is running out. And in Parshat Vayichi, Yaakov Avinu is given the Aliyah pitch. And the pasha opens up where Jacob is in Egypt and he's on his deathbed. Jacob calls Yosef over to him and he says, listen, if you really want to do a chesed for me, you want to really do me a kindness, then please get me out of Egypt. Don't bury me in Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers and carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their grave. So Yaakov, knowing that Yosef, kind of get used to the Gullis. I mean, more than any other son, he's pretty connected to Gullis in Egypt. He's been there for a while. He's very successful. Yaakov knows that Yosef has got pretty used to it in Egypt. He's given him a message right off the bat. Get me out of here. I want nothing to do with Egypt. Make sure you bury me in Eretz Israel. And he makes Joseph swear to him that he'll do it. Again, Yaakov is giving Yosef a much-needed lesson in Zionism. He's telling Yosef, this is not our place. Now, one final thing I want to talk about in the Pasha, which expresses a classic element of exile. After Jacob passes away, Yosef fell at his father's face and he wept. And now he has to approach Paro and fulfill the promise of his father that, that his father not be buried in Egypt, but be buried in Hebron where his forefathers are. So that should be an easy enough request. After all, the Egyptians owe Joseph a whole lot. He saved their country. should be a big hero. But watch how much Joseph has to beg. It's just like this, when the period of mourning for Jacob was over, Joseph addressed Paro's court. So at this point, Joseph doesn't even have a straight line to Paro. He's got to go through Paro's court. And he says, if you would do me a great favor, please give the following message to Paro. My father gave me an oath and he's got to basically beg here to have his father buried in the land of Canaan. He keeps apologizing for it. He says, now, if you allow me, I will head north and bury my father. Please let me do this. And finally, Paro says, okay, go bury your father just as you swore to him. But what does it show? It shows that even though a Jew, he might be successful in the Gullahs, he usually is for a certain period of time, but eventually that ends. Nothing lasts forever. The good life doesn't last forever. The years have passed. All that Yosef did for them is less and less appreciated. And he's almost like anybody else over there. He's got to practically beg to fulfill his father's wishes. So on that note, the Jew has to remember that the exile is not his place. Come to Eretz Israel where you belong, and join us in our fight against evil. That's it for me. If you want to hear more of me, you can tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. Also, we have a website, lennygoldberg.com, lennygoldberg.com. There you get my podcasts and articles and my Bible classes all on that website. So you can hook onto that. And in the meantime, I'll be back, same time, same station.